0: to the Bible 126 show. Well, we are in the Book of Judges, Chapter 9. This book of Judges is proving to be one of the most interesting books we've taken up. We took it up really as a matter of part of a schedule in our in reviewing it into the historical books, but it's really startling to realize that the, the period of the judges is characterized by four statements. There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes That, as an indictment of its low morality and so on. The word of God was disparaged, discarded, and they were in bondage. What's astonishing is to realize how prophetic the book of Judges turns out to be, because those four characteristics are true today. There is no king in Israel. If there's a king coming, they're not expecting. Everyone's doing right what's in their own eyes. This value relativism is standard in our country. It's our cultural basis now. You have your truth, I have mine kind of nonsense. There's a disregard for the Word of God. The biblical illiteracy, even among Christians, is astonishing. But praise God, uh, the Spirit is moving. And uh, our culture is in bondage. Bondage to lies and deceit. Bondage to the most... They believe the most unbelievable lie of all the absence of design in the universe, the whole concept. Anyway, I won't start on that. Let's move on. Um, One other uh, interesting aspect is the book, just by way of review in the book of Judges, Joshua was told to conquer the land, and he did. But they were also told to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain tribes. And they failed to do that. And those pockets of appeasement grew to pockets of strength and pockets of abuse to them. And the book of Judges goes through the penalties of them not doing what God told them to do. What is fascinating is to realize the geography of the book of Judges. I've left the maps out. We're going to do that near the end for some special reviews. But the primary places that they failed to root out their enemies was Jericho, the capital, Bet Yara, the house of the moon god, the Golan Heights, Hebron, Ramallah, the Gaza Strip. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like it's out of the front pages of today's newspaper? Those are the same pockets of their adversaries to this day. Interesting. Book of Judges. I think there's more to be discovered here than most prophecy buffs have ever taken a look at. But anyway, tonight we are, in a sense, just trailing the incredible saga of Gideon who had his forces whittled down by God himself so that no one could but God could take credit for the incredible victory that was delivered. We went through all of that. Gideon was the big hero of the day. And he, although he arranged to live pretty comfortably, he refused to be king. We're going to explore today, tonight, in our sixth session here, Abimelech. And I'm going to call it my kingdom come. <laughs> so, you know, Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 12 says, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. And that's exactly what Abimelech did. This, this session is not for kids. This session is pretty bloody. It's the longest chapter in the book of Judges. It's also, in many ways, the most depressing. They say no man's life is completely worthless. Why? For anyone can serve as a horrible example. <laughs> okay. And I think we've got one on our hands tonight. We're going to see it. Give me a glimpse in advance. We're going to learn two big lessons tonight. The peril of ambition and the principle that you reap what you sow. Both are going to be dramatically demonstrated here as we go. And I'll have the text on the the, uh, screen, but I encourage you to follow it in your own Bibles. Judges chapter 9, verse 1, and Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam is an interesting guy. It's Gideon, but you'll notice in this chapter, he's never called Gideon. He's always called Jeroboam. Just to get a little more background, you know, it's interesting, when George Washington's army defeated British General Charles Cornwallis at Yorktown, the end of the Revolutionary War began. But it didn't end with the problems. They had huge, huge problems even after that decisive defeat of the British. Things were so bad economically that there were those that felt the only way the country would get its act together is to make George Washington king. And he was popular enough to have that happen, but he, of course, declined. And he he rejected that plan. Abimelech is just the opposite here. He had a passionate desire to be king and that he allowed nothing to stand in his way even the lives of hundreds of people. So we're going to discover there's really three stages in this chapter. Seizing the kingdom, and then uh, we'll we'll follow through as we go. Abimelech was the son of Jeroboam or Gideon by a concubine. A concubine was a slave that continued to live with their family, through whom he had a son. And uh, the family lived in Shechem. We're going to talk a little about Shechem here in a minute. You can imagine, he happened to have 69 brothers, or I should say half-brothers. And you can imagine how they treated the son of the concubine. His name means, my father is king. And uh, how often it is that we find the next generation is not made of the stuff of that first generation. And that's what we're going to discover here. He lived like, uh, Gideon lived like a king, but remember he refused uh, to establish a dynasty in Israel. And uh, he made it clear that neither Abimelech or anybody, any of his sons would rule over the people. Israel would not have a true king until Saul, when Samuel gets in the act a little later. Uh, he was anointed in 1 Samuel 10, when Saul was anointed. In any case, obviously Abimelech felt his dad had made a mistake. And uh, after his father's death, he moved from uh, Oprah to Shechem to start his campaign. Now, there's a strategic reason he went to Shechem. Now, by the way, as he moves along here, he's going to uh, break several of God's laws. last of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not covet. Abimelech is obviously coveting. Ambition can cause people to achieve things. There's a positive side to it. But if carried to excess, of course, it can be a dangerous, dangerous master. I will ascend into heaven turned an angel into the devil in Isaiah 14. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, says, is not this Babylon that I have built. It was the declaration that made a king into an animal for seven years. Daniel 4. If we, have exalted, if we exalt ourselves, God has a way of bringing us down. Anyway, uh, he went to Shechem to, unto his mother's brethren, communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the... Notice that. He's speaking to the house of his mother's father. These are Canaanites. Don't confuse the fact that Gideon was Jewish. His mother was not, you see, okay? Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem. What is better for you, either that all the sons of Jerubbaal it's hard to pronounce properly, which are threescore and ten persons, reign over you or that one reign over you, remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. He is trading on the fact that he is half Canaanite, in effect, okay? Now, Shechem is a very interesting place. It had been a religious center way back from the time of Abraham in Genesis 12. It's located in a narrow valley between the hills of Gerizim and Ebal. That's where they, they, uh, in the times of Joshua, they uh, had the recitation of the blessings and cursings in Joshua 8. And it was also a covenant renewal ceremony there before the book of Joshua closes in Joshua 24. So Shechem is a major center and the land. It was also situated on strategic crossroads in commercial terms. There's a latitudinal route that uh, ascended from the coast highway in the west and descending to Adam, which is a town on the, on the Jordan River. And on, going longitudinally, it's on a central ridge from Jerusalem on the south to the northern accesses to the Jezreel Valley. And so this is right in the center of the land. And starting his campaign there, you realize it's natural because he's going to draw upon the Canaanites for his support. Now his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem all these words, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So he's playing on his his Canaanite background here. Uh, He could represent, in effect, both uh, constituencies. And uh, the Canaanites of Shechem had no indebtedness to Gideon's sons, while Abimelech was one of their own. So on the one hand, he could ride the popularity of Gideon in a sense. On the other hand, he had the... The ethnic link to the population. And so they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons, which followed him. Now this Baal Barith is, means the Lord of the Covenant. This was the sacred house of a God of the Philistines. So he's drawing public money, so to speak, from the religious organizations that's pagan. One reason they called Gideon Jerubabel, remember that he, his father named him that. He took on that name when his father stood with him when he tore down the idols of Baal, if you recall, back there in Judges 8. Something else you may re- remember from uh, earlier chapters that as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel turned again and went whoring after Balaam and made Baal Barith their god. So the, while this is a Canaanite god, it was also followed by many of the Israelites. So we're heading for trouble, obviously. Ambition is a terrible master. You know, Plato said, uh, might is right. And about three centuries later, Seneca said, might makes right. Now, frankly, in fairness to both of them, uh, they were both not defending political brutality, uh, but that the end justifies the means. But they're discussing how to bring justice into society. So they're often quoted out of context. But in any case, they're famous for those quotes. Um, Joseph Joubert, some 17 centuries later, the French novelist, said that might and right govern everything in the world and might until right is ready. I think Lord Acton really summarized it the way we remember it best, and that is that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we're going to watch that unfold as we go here. But another aspect of this, let's remember that we become like the gods we worship. You find that in Psalm 115.8 and also 135.18. We become like the gods we worship. Is the world cold? Hard? Ruthless? You worship the world, you'll become cold, hard, ruthless, materialistic, fill in the blanks. See, that's the one that's one of the incredible benefits of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't mean just learn about him. If you worship him, what happens? You'll become like him. We become like the gods we worship. We've got to be careful if we're worshiping the world, careful if you're worshiping material things. Habakkuk also described these people as guilty men whose strength is their god, and that certainly is is uh, is part of it. Well, we talked about the verses three and four. Verses five. Verse five he says, "And he went to his father's house at uh, Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Jeroboam, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, Jerubbaal uh, was left, for he hid himself." By the way, some commentators argue where there are 70 plus the one. Most of them feel that the 70 is a title for the group, the son of the concubine. Abimelech was one of them. There were 69 plus one, but they'll always speak of the 70 as a group. Just like in, in several places in the New Testament, will speak of the 12 even after Judas was no longer, you know. So that it's, a, it's a collective noun, if you will. But without getting into that debate, in any case, um, here Abimelech, the sort of the illegitimate son, in a sense, gets the all his brothers or half-brothers, slaughtered. That's quite a day's work. Seventy of them. Visualize that. Well, one of them, Jotham, slips out. The youngest son, he managed to hide himself, and that turns out to be very important. Here again, you can start ticking off the commandments that are being broken. Thou shalt not murder, of course, the sixth commandment. This has been and will be violated many times by Abimelech. And we know that murderers do go to hell from Revelation 21.8 and 22.15. And there's no evidence anywhere in the narrative that either Bimelech or his gang ever repented of their sins. Their feet were swift to shed blood, as Romans 3.15 talks about, or Isaiah 59.7. But that blood would come back on their hands before the chapter's over. Now, murder's bad enough, but when one kills his brother, it's even, that's something especially heinous about that. And we have, of course, Cain and Abel. We have Absalom in David's case. And, the uh, Jerome in, uh, Second Chronicles. In fact, he murdered six of his brothers. You know, it's pretty cynical to realize that this is all going on in the shadow of the exploits and the indebtedness that we were celebrating just a chapter ago about Gideon. Gideon had thrown off the yoke of the Midianites and so forth. And here already we're finding that's all forgotten. In verse 6, the men, all the men of Shechem gathered together, all at the house of Milo, and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. Now, this Beth Milo, the, the house of Milo, uh, translates as the house of the fortress. And uh, it probably was that section of the, of the area where the upper classes were able to live. In your King James, it says the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. The word ilom in the Hebrew is really also refers to a tree or a great tree a tabernacle or an oak and it uh, probably was the well-known sacred tree of the Oak of Moray which was prominent in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 35 so they are in effect defiling a major place in uh, history the Oak of Moray this is where the Lord appeared to Abraham and promised to give him his descendants in the land in Genesis 12 remembering the call of Abraham and so on this is where Jacob buried the idols here as he called his family back to God in Genesis 24 and it was near this site that Israel heard the blessings and cursings read from the Torah and promised that they would obey the Lord in Deuteronomy 11, and it's also counted in Joshua chapter 8. And of course, here's Joshua gave his last speech and led the people to reaffirming their obedience to the Torah. This is sacred ground, and yet, of course, it's being defiled by these acts of rebellion by Abimelech. So it's ironic, in a sense, that these selfish acts are going to degrade this place by, because of one man. And this leads to a couple other commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The ninth commandment has to do with bearing false witness. He broke all of these as he, when he was crowned king. He took the office in the name of the Lord, that's blasphemy. If he promised to protect the people and obey the law, that was deception. And uh, no matter what he promised, his own agenda. He had his own agenda and he was going to carry that out. And so uh, Ambrose Pierce, in his very, the cynical journalist who published a collection of definitions called the Devil's Dictionary, says, politics is a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles, the conduct of pu- public affairs for private advantage. And that's a cynical description, but pretty descriptive, certainly, of what's going on here. Well, Jotham had escaped the slaughter of his brothers, but uh, when he heard what was going on, that they're going to make him king, he went and stood at the top of Mount Gerizim, lifted up his voice, and cried and said to them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, God may hearken, that God may hearken to you. Now, he probably spoke from a triangular rock ledge that's on the side of Mount Gerizim that forms sort of a natural pulpit. And you can hear from there all the way across the relatively narrow valley to the other side. And this is the place where the blessings uh, were to be read in Deuteronomy 27. But Jothan's uh, speech is anything but a blessing. The tribe of Joseph, which would, of course, be and Manasseh, was to stand on the Mount of Blessing. But Abimelech hadn't brought any blessing to Gideon's tribe of Manasseh. In fact, he's going to disgrace it. Parables, you say, gee, this is a parable. We think of parables in the New Testament. There's actually a handful of parables in the Old Testament. We had Nathan's parable of the ewe lamb. Uh, we had the parable of the woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14. We have the parable of the thistle in Second uh, Kings 14. Parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. Very prominent parable in the Old Testament. But also Jeremiah and Ezekiel have many action kinds of parables. And so it's not unique to the New Testament. But anyway, Jotham, in his thing, said, he says, hearken unto me, that God may hearken unto you. He says, the trees, he's speaking as a parable now, he says, the trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign thou over us. The olive tree said to them, should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man and to be promoted over the trees? The tree said to the fig tree, come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to be promoted over the trees? And by the way, I should mention Ezekiel 31 and also Daniel 4 uses the idiom of a tree to represent a king or a leader or what have you, by the way, just as a aside. It's not an unusual Hebraism, if you will. Then the tree said unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. The vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine that cheereth God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? Then all the trees went unto the bramble. Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Very strange set of puns going on here. Each of the first three trees refused the honor. But when we come to the bramble, that's a thorn bush. That's known as an absolutely worthless nuisance. Um, it uh, All through the Middle East. It produces no fruit. It's too low to the ground to even pro- provide shade. The wood splinters too easily to make anything out of it, so it's only good for fire. This, of course, Jotham is using this as a symbol of whom? Abimelech, of course. As the worthless, you know, the, you let go of the three that might have been valuable. They, they picked the bramble here. So we have the olive tree passes, the fig tree, the sweet fruit passes, the vine passes. We get to the bramble. No fruit, too low for shade. It's only good as fuel for the fire. So Jotham is not only throwing this parable to shame the men of Shechem in what they're doing, he's also going to, knowingly or unknowingly, utter a curse and a prophecy together. See, the brambles also frequently in the desert would catch fire and cause damage by spontaneous fires. So it becomes an idiom. In 2 Samuel 23, Uh, David says, The sons of Bilal shall be one of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and chaff of the spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Uh, And Isaiah uses the same kind of idioms. The wickedness burneth as the fire, and it shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened. The people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and so on. So these idioms that Jotham is using, equating the bramble with the fire, is, is, is natural. So we move on. So Jotham continues after setting that parable up. He says, Now therefore, if ye have done truly and sincerely, in that ye have made a king, and if ye have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands... For my father fought for you and ventured his life far, and risked his life in other words, and ventured his life far and delivered you from out of the hand of Midian. And ye are risen up against my father's house this day and have slain his sons, threescore and ten persons upon one stone and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. See, there's a curse in prophecy here. Then rejoice. If ye have dealt truly and sincerely with Jebel and his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo, or the fortress of the, uh, the house of the fortress. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. This is going to be a prophecy that by the time you get to verse 57 is going to nail it. And uh, then he, can, he finally wraps it up. He says, And Jotham ran away and fled to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech his brother. Where Beer is is quite a scholastic debate, and other commentators are quite sure, but it's neither here nor there. He obviously ran into hiding because they didn't receive his speech very favorably. <laughs> no surprise, huh? Again, there's lots of discussion about is there 70 plus 1? You see, most scholars think that one, that, that Bimlik was counted in the 70. In any case, we know there wasn't even 69 because Jotham escaped, so there's really 68. But that's quibbling, and you know the, the exegetes can argue over it if they like. We'll move on. Sort of uh, this whole issue of uh, Abimelech trying to wrest the kingdom away from God, in effect. You Remember Gideon told him that he would not rule over you, I will not rule over you, God will rule over you. So Abimelech's move here, I'm sure it's the last of his concern probably, but is against God. So God is still on the throne. And he's going to see to it that Abimelech's selfish motives will be frustrated. And that we can't help but echo Romans 12, verse 3. As you know, for my convention here, I I use the parchment if it's New Testament, the scrolls, if it's old, just to help keep focus. But anyway, Romans tells, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of his faith. How many feel that describes Abimelech? Anyone? When Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel, things start to fall apart. In verse 23, Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. By the way, before we go any further, I want to shed some misconceptions here. It says Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel. It's easier for you and I to make too much of that. The word reigned is probably too strong a word. It should be governed, and certainly not the whole nation. There wasn't that much integrity or or consistency. There's still it's little pockets of tribal disputes going on all over. So he didn't reign supremely over the entire nation. didn't have that kind of solidarity. And he was in control of Shechem and Beth Milo and Aruma and uh, Thebes and a few few of the towns in that general area, the central Jezreel Valley between between Jerusalem, Galilee, and, and Megiddo, that center area. In other words, the western part of the tribe of Manasseh, if you will. But in any case, God sends a spirit of ill will. You say, that sounds kind of strange. You find that occurs in 1 Kings 12 and Isaiah 19 and other places also. God rules the universe. Even Satan couldn't touch Job without God's permission. Let's not forget that. And I think Longfellow said it so well, though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. So it's coming. Just hang in there. So we get to verse 24 and then the, that the cruelty done to the threescore and ten sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be lain upon Abimelech their brother which slew them and upon the men of Shechem which aided him in the killing of his brother in other words, God is sending the spirit because this all their work is going to be undone and come around crashing around their ears men of Shechem sent liars in wait for him in the top of the mountains and they robbed all that came along uh, that way by them as it was and it was of course told uh, to Abimelech. Abimelech wasn't in Shechem, he was in Aruma. We learn that from verse 41. These bandits were robbing him of both his tribute money and his reputation. He's losing revenue from the tariffs on the roads and so forth. But he's also, it's demonstrating to the people that he's not, that Abimelech's not in control. The fundamental burden of the government is provide, you know, stability. And he's not doing that. Can't protect the area of business. And that's a fundamental requirement of the crown. And Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his brethren and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. And so one good bringer deserves another, right? There's always an intruder to uh, spoil the fun. One good opportunist uh, will meet another opportunist. So Gael moves in. Uh, verse 27. The, and they went out into the fields and gathered their vineyards and trod their grapes and made merry and went into the house of their god and did eat and drink and cursed Abimelech. So Abimelech's own following... They're him in power. He's starting to get disenchanted with him. They're having a big party. They're getting drunk. And Gale is right in the middle of it. Gale, the son of David, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And Zebul is his officer. Zebul is going to be a double agent, you'll find here in a minute. They serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for why should we serve him? This is about the time of the grape harvest. That would put it about June or July. The Shechemites, the Canaanites, if you will, also had a pagan festival because it's about the same time, by the way, as the Feast of Ingathering, Leviticus 23 and all that, what we call the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. They're drunk, they're starting to curse Abimelech, and also his deputy, who was the governor of Shechem, apparently. Why did Gael curse and challenge Abimelech? Well, for lots of reasons, not the least of which, he was drunk. He reminded the people that their king had a Jewish father, and while they were sons of Hamor, not the sons of Jacob. And uh, so see, a key plank in Abimelech's platform had been that uh, uh, you know that he was a Shechemite. That's going to be, in effect, a thorn in his flesh because they're going to turn on him. As you get to verse 29, And would to God this people were under my hand, this is Gael talking, then would I remove Abimelech? And he said to Abimelech, Increase thy army and come out. That's a dare. He's challenging Abimelech. And when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent, this is now Abimelech's deputy, he sends messengers to Abimelech privately saying, Behold, Gale, the son of Ebed, and his brethren, be come to Shechem, and behold, they fortify the city against thee. Now therefore, up by night, thou and the people that is with thee, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be that in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, Thou shalt rise early and set upon the city, and behold, when he and the people that is with him come out against thee, thou mayest do to them as thou shalt find occasion. So this guy is pretending to be a friend to those guys, and it's not really. He's tipping off his boss, okay? Now, Abimelech's in Aruma, which is probably uh, between Shechem and Shiloh, if you're watching the map anyway. Um, and Gael was living in Shechem with these guys. He was more accessible to the people than Abimelech was. Abimelech was remote. Gael said, it's always a danger signal because he's close to the people and the problems. This would be the same approach that Absalom will use many years later to turn the hearts of Israel against his father. And of course, he, he closes the party by, by challenging uh, the king to accept his challenge. And Abimelech rose up, and all the people that were with him by night, and they laid against Shechem in four companies. And Gael the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entering of the gate of the city, and Abimelech rose up the people that were with him from lying in wait. Now, when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Behold, there come people down from the top of the mountains. Begin to realize that, you know, someone's calling his bluff. He's beginning in the early confusion of the morning. He's, he thinks he sees some people, at the, you know, at the, coming down from the mountains, but it's quite distant. And Zebul says to him, Thou seest the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. So his counselor is sort of minimizing this to give them time to position, I guess. And Gale spoke to him again and said, See, there come people down by the middle of the land, and another company come along by the plain of Menonim. Now, as this is happening, they're getting closer, and of course the the sun is rising, it's getting clear. Then said Zebul to him, where is now thy mouth? (laughs) Where is now thy mouth, wherewith thou saidst, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Is not this the people thou hast despised? Go out, I pray now, and fight with them. Or in our turn, you know, this is time to fish or cut bait here, guy. Gail went out before the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Big mistake. Abimelech chased him, fled before him, and many were overthrown and wounded, even unto the entering of the gate. and Abimelech dwelled at Aruma, and Zebul thrust out Gael and his brethren that they should not dwell in Shechem. It came to pass on the morrow that the people went out into the field. They told Abimelech, and he took the people, divided them into three companies, laid in wait in the field, looked, and behold, the people were come forth out of the city. He rose up against them and smote them. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward, stood in the entering of the gate of the city, and the two other companies ran all the people that were in in the fields and slew them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and he slew all the people that was therein, and beat down the city, and sowed it with salt. Now, understand, see, Gael trusted Zebul as a friend, that was a big mistake, because he's really a double agent in a sense. See, Gale was in a problem. If he hid in the city, then he would have been disgraced and lost his following, so that's why he'd eventually be caught. He tried to flee, but Abimelech got him, and then, of course, Abimelech goes. You know, this, in a sense, uh, sort of reminds me of uh, Jesus the night of the, the, the Last Supper, in a sense. Because the plan had not been to take Jesus on a feast day. You study Matthew, they planned to get him, but not on a feast day. They feared they fear the Romans. So Judas wasn't planning to do it that night. But Jesus announces that he's going to. That puts Judas on the spot. He's got a fisher-cut bait. Cut's out of the bag. He's either got to do it now or give it up. So he takes off. And what that do is do quickly. But what's always fascinating about that. Everybody misses. Who's in charge? Not Judas. Jesus is calling the shot. He's calling the timing. He gives the instructions at Gethsemane. If me you seek let those let these go their way and they let, you know they're, they're following his directions crucifixion of Christ was not a tragedy it was an achievement fulfillment of his mission he came for but I'm off the subject let's get back I'm sorry anyway Abimelech like wipes out the city that was supporting this this rebellion and uh, the, back in verse 27 the, the citizens there had cursed him and they were attacking caravans and robbing him money so he Straightens that out. Now, this last verse says, beat down the city, and he sowed it with salt. Why did he do that? For two reasons. Uh, first of all, it prevented anything ever growing there. It made it unproductive. That's the concept. It's also a symbolic action of sorts. Condemned a conquered city so that no one would want to live there. In Jeremiah 48.9. Uh, Jeremiah said, put put salt on Moab, for she will be laid waste, and her town shall become desolate uh, with no one to live in them." so on. Deuteronomy 29, Jeremiah 17. There's never never places you'll find this salt used this way. By the way, archaeology has confirmed this destruction of Shechem. It stayed in ruin until Jeroboam I rebuilt it as his capital. Much later, 1 Kings 12 is when he rebuilds it. So archaeological discoveries have illuminated this, uh, this event. Moving on to verse 46. When all the men of the tower of Shechem heard that, they entered into the hold of the house of the god of Barith. Now this tower of Shechem could very well be the same as the house of Milo back in verse 6 where the aristocracy lived. And uh, the people fled from Beth Milo to the temple of baal Berith, and uh, apparently they felt maybe that they were safer in the, in the in the house of their god hoping that somehow Abimelech might respect it. That was naive. So he turned the temple into a convenient furnace. Abimelech got up to the Mount Zalman and he and all the people that were with him and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder and said to the people that were with him, What ye have seen me do, make case new to what I have done. And all the people likewise cut down every man his bough and they followed Abimelech and put them in the hold and set the hold on fire upon them and so all the men of the tower of Shechem died also. About a thousand men and women burned alive, if you will, in this, what shall I call it, a furnace of convenience, I guess. So the Lord has avenged the blood of Gideon's sons. The fire did come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon, which is a term for leadership. represent represents the leading citizens of the city and so forth. Now, this carnage may bother you. It's getting hairy. It's not finished. But uh, you know, if you stand back and look at what Adolf Hitler did, what Joseph, what Joseph Stalin did to his own people, the estimates run like 60 million murdered by Stalin. And these were Russians for, in, his, in his pursuit of power. With all kinds of numbers, who knows. Um, Idi Amin, Yasser Arafat, murdered more Arabs than he has Jews. Of course, he gets the peace prize for all that. Eh? But... Yeah. <laughs> and it's going on today. By the thousands in the Sudan, Somalia, elsewhere. Well, now, then went Abimelech to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and took it. And there was a strong tower within the city. And thither fled all the men and women and all they of the city and shut in them and got them up to the top of the tower. They apparently have the same strategy. Thebes is about 10 miles northeast from Shechem and on the road to Shan, if you're oriented to that. And so they had also joined in the general rebellion against Abimelech. so he went there to punish them. And here again, the citizens seek the refuge in the tower that's intended to protect them. And he used the same method of attack here as he did in Shechem, he came to the tower and fought against it and went hard unto the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Except he gets a splitting headache. <laughs> a certain woman cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to break his skull. Then he called hastily to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said unto him, Draw thy sword and slay me, that men say not of me, a woman slew him. The young man thrust him through and he died. See, he's trying to avoid the disgrace. There's a triple disgrace involved here. He was killed, not in real battle. He was killed by a woman, which is a disgrace to a soldier. He was killed with a millstone and not a sword. Despite the sword thing, this becomes a part of his reputation. The fact that he was killed by a woman gets echoed in 2 Samuel 11, verse 21. So that, despite his gesture at the end, the, the reputation that continues is what really happened. I mean, prior to that. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. And uh, a millstone, by the way, so you get a picture of this, is typically, oh, maybe a a foot, foot and a half in diameter, several inches thick, hole in the middle typically. It was heavy, obviously, and yet manageable by a woman to drop over the edge on on his head. So it was effective. Um, So God remembered the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did to his father. And slaying his 70 brethren, and all the evil of the men of Shechem did God render upon their heads. And unto them came the curse of Jotham. Remember back in verse 20, what Jotham had said? Let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. It certainly did. And the house of Milo. Let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. Which indeed it did. So, Beth Milo again, the house of fortress. Psalm 34.21 says, The evil shall slay the wicked. And they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Shedding innocent blood. That's one of the things this chapter is all about. The shedding of innocent blood is something that God takes seriously. And we could go through Deuteronomy 19, First Kings 2, Proverbs 6, Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 7. Don't need to. Anyone who's read the Bible knows how God feels about the shedding of innocent blood. In 1990, just to pick one date, in the United States there were 23,438 murders. That's about three per hour all year long. That's right here in the land of the free. Millions of innocent babies are killed in their mother's wombs. The land of the free is stained Mm -hmm. with innocent blood. You know, it's interesting, we we read, uh, not so much here, but we'll read about not just Baal, but Moloch, different kind of worship, where they took babies. They had a bronze idol that they heated red hot or whatever it was, and they laid the baby in the arms of this idol. They sacrificed babies. Does that offend you? Yes. We've invented something even more heinous. We murder our babies in the Holy of Holies, mm-hmm. the womb of the mother all this debate about abortion. Whenever he talks about that, remind him when John the Baptist started his ministry. He was nine inches long weighed a pound and a half. And he jumped for joy and was spirit-filled. Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I recall that God is just and that His justice will not sleep forever. All kinds of people are predicting, every once in a while you find some people predicting dire things about the United States because of our debt service, the federal debt, or this or that, or the decline of our military. Or You, you can make the list. Those are not a problem. Those things are not a problem. Our problems are morality. The only thing that will forestall this is a wave of repentance to this country. We've had our twin towers fall have we gotten the message I watch with great fascination what's going on in the Middle East we're moving to a series of wars I'm not saying it's Armageddon don't misunderstand me I'm not saying it's the Magog invasion all these things could be right on deriving out of what's coming but we do know the summary of the whole thing and even the zealots in favor of Israel and supporting Israel missed the point the point of Psalm 2 why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing and so on I'll let you study that on its own next time we are going to be in Judges chapter 10 in fact you might read 10, 11 and 12 as your preparation for next time but I'll give you one little assignment when you open your reading assignment next time you're going to discover a very brief couple of verses the first part of chapter 10 about a guy by the name of Tola you just wonder, what's that there? Tola's there, and there's some good things happen, Just a verse or two, and that's it. What's Tola all about? And what we'll get into a little next time, Tola, the, the Hebrew word for Tola, means worm. Worm. Isn't that a great name? Hey, worm. Huh? Why is it called worm? Well, it also means scarlet. The word also is used for, in Hebrew for scarlet. What's that got to do with anything? Well, scarlet, the word goes for scarlet because that worm is where they get the dye. They didn't have dyes, really. They used natural dyes, and the worms were where they got the red for scarlet. Shellfish gave them the Levitical blue, and so forth. But you see, what you want to do whenever you come across something like that, if you're a normal, well-adjusted person, you're reading, you say, okay, totally did this, that, and you go on, you read. But if you've been to one of my Bible studies, you're no longer a well-adjusted human being. (laughs) You know that every detail's there by design. God put that name there for you, for some reason. Well, why? What's this worm and scarlet got to do? I'll take your concordance, and I'll take you to Psalm twenty-two, which reads as if it was dictated by Jesus, he hung on the cross, where he claims, "I'm a worm and no man." What does he mean? What is this scarlet business? You see, Kermes Vermilio, the little worm we're talking about would attach itself to a bark of a tree, lay its larva, and then die there and let the larva eat the body for food and become the offspring. And while that's all going on, it's red, and when they leave, it's white, so the scarlet turns white until they're gone. I'm a worm and no man. Jesus says, why? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? Why? Why as well. I'll let you run with that for next time. And we'll get into Jephthah and the dismal, going, dismal goings on in, in uh, chapter 10 and following. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you, Father, that you've brought us together here. We thank you, Father, that we have the freedom to gather without threat. We thank you, Father, for the incredible richness of resources you've made available to us, to us all. Your word, Father. We do pray, Father, that you would open your word to our hearts and our lives to your word. We pray, Father, that you would just increase in each of us a new hunger, a new passion for your word, Father. That we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That we each might be more fruitful stewards, more effective stewards of all that you've given us. We pray, Father, that we might grow in fruitfulness for you, Father. Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, Father. We do pray, Father, that you would illuminate that path before each of us, that we might know your heart, Father, and what you would have us do in the days that remain. As we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.